and welcome to the Clever Hybrids Podcast. Every season, we interview 12 bilingual professionals from around the world to hear their tips and to help you thrive in this multidimensional world. Let's jump right into the episode. I'm here with Jean Van Horn. Jean is an entrepreneur, has worked in the IT, insurance, and sales industries for over 30 years. He became bilingual when he started doing ministry work with the Latino community in Washington, D.C. in the early 80s. He's an old-school clever hybrid and my mentor. He also happens to be my dad. Papi, thank you for being here with us today. My pleasure. So I want to ask you a few questions about your background. What was it like growing up in the Washington, D.C. area in the early and late 70s? Well, I would say more like the early 70s, because just like what's going on in the news today, people are seeing worldwide demonstrations, this uprising that's going on. Growing up in the 70s was during the aftermath of that. In the late 60s, 1968, there were a lot of rioting nationwide going on after Martin Luther King was killed, and it caused the destruction of a lot of urban areas. A lot of the white Caucasian people that lived in those urban areas, which were kind of chic at the time, they fled to the suburbs in many communities, and suburbs got a big influx of people. Probably three years after that, my family moved to the suburbs. I was growing up in integration, trial version (laughs) (laughs) 1.0. I saw you made an article about that on LinkedIn. It was very interesting. It can feel weird when you're the first ones doing something like that. It's hard to say, oh, we're the first ones, but I know how suburban communities are rubber stamped. You have blocks of houses. In my community, each block had maybe 20 houses side by side. You have your little cookie cutter backyards facing one another, one on your left, one on your right, one behind you. So it was a generic community, but they had been in place for about 30 years before he moved there from the early 50s. I know on my block, to get to your original point, we were the only black family at the time. Everybody else was white, which was fine, but it was funny to see black people move in over the years. I was like, oh, there's another one. There's another one. (laughs) Looking back on it from a vantage point of a five-year-old, I could see that people were trying to feel us out. And The neighbors next door were an older couple named Jules and you could tell they had been there since the beginning of time. They were really old. Mr. Jewel was pleasant, and I would talk to him. And Sometimes he asked me to do little favors for him, and I could see he realized, oh, this family's not that bad. His grandchildren would come from time to time, and we would play darts with them. There used to be these darts that you throw in the air. They're illegal now. <laughs> you throw them at a target, and you try to get into a little bullseye. I remember playing that with his grandchildren. He'd be so happy looking on. They were white, we were black, but it was no big deal. The community started to see that we were not a threat and other black people came and they were not a threat. It gradually started to become more flexible as the decade wore on. That's a good point. People start to get used to each other. There's a quote by Anthony Bourdain. He said, traveling or even living in a diverse community, you experience people, but they also get to experience you. Being African-American in the community, even 
that was a new thing. What was it like seeing the growth of the Latino diaspora from the 70s moving forward? Yeah, I know that was very interesting to watch because in my neighborhood, I only knew of two Latino families, meaning personally where they lived, probably out of, I would say, 15 to 20 blocks of houses. I only knew of two families. And the two boys in the families were classmates of mine. I'm sure there were other ones, but they were the only ones that really stood out to me. And we were so rare, African-Americans or black kids and the Latino kids, but both of the boys were from Mexico. They were as different from each other as night and day. So I came to appreciate all Latino people are not alike. One was a really good friend of mine and we would have a really good time. His name was Louis. I'm sure it's probably Luis, but he would go by Louis. <laughs> My mom also had a Latina come to help take care of us from time to time. I think the lady was from South America. Her English was very limited, but she was very polite and professional. My initial introduction to Latin people was really positive. I saw there were a lot of different types, but I didn't really know their roots and origins, but they were very nice people. Hmm. I never knew that. You never told me that before. Okay. <laughs> Seeing the culture, a lot of people just stop there. They now, instead of saying tortilla, they say tortilla, but you decided to learn another language and immerse yourself in the culture before it was cool to do that. What made you want to do ministry work in the Latino community? Yeah, that's a good question. I know growing up, Louis was my friend when I was seven or eight. He moved away and I got to know Israel, who was the other young Mexican around the same time. Just one after another experience with Latino people. I was just like, these are good people. These are nice people. I remember going to Louis' house and his mother would be talking to him in Spanish. I wanted to know what she was telling him. She was all animated. He'd be like, don't worry about it. It's not important. She didn't say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and she would talk to him in Spanish and he would talk back in English. I don't know what she was saying to him I, because I didn't speak Spanish at the time. So it doesn't even ring a bell in my brain what she was saying. As I got older, I would see that interaction when I started to learn Spanish where the kids didn't want to speak. I had a very positive experience with the community. When I started to do ministry work when I was 18 or 19, I wanted to assist in the Latino community because we had a need for volunteer workers in the Latino community in the Washington, D.C. area amongst Jehovah's Witness ministers. But I was not able to speak Spanish at the time, so it took me about six years before I really had the time to invest in learning the language. I went on a trip to Argentina, which was a short trip of Jehovah's Witnesses for an international convention that we had. I was immersed in the community and I was starting to get a hang of certain things. So that's when I began my immersion classes. When I came back, I said, it's just a matter of effort. Shortly after that, I moved to the Latino community. My process began in the mid eighties, but then by 1991, I made the move and been doing it ever since. It's great. I remember hearing stories about the convention. You even helped me do the same thing by going to Frankfurt, Germany and getting immersed in the Eritrean culture. I ended up marrying an Eritrean. It's yeah. <laughs> ah, see? See? Having worked in so many different spheres in the volunteer sphere and in different industries, 
Which do you feel is more successful long-term, working alone or with a team? It depends on the person, of course. That's a personality-specific question. Some people are solo entrepreneurs. They do their best work alone. I'm a introverted type person, and I could tend towards solo, but I like to do teamwork. If you have a good, tight team of individuals who know each other's strengths and weaknesses, you always have support, and you can always give support. It keeps the ball rolling much more smoothly uphill than if it's just you. So it's collaborative is what I do. Some things I do on my own, some things I need collaboration with. Sometimes I give collaboration and support. So there's that African proverb many people have read, if you want to go fast, you can go by yourself. But if you want to go far, you go with somebody else. So teams go farther, I think, than individuals. Yeah, I think so too. You even mentioned in one of your articles on LinkedIn, big advocate of diversity. You're talking about the diversity in Star Trek, the original series. So I'll go ahead and quote you here because I really liked it. <laughs> the leadership team, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, came from totally different backgrounds. Their formal meetings to discuss solutions to a crisis were almost always heated, except for cool, calm Spock, of course. But it was the diversity, the different ways of looking at the situation, and, most importantly, the lack of yes-men that always caused a solid plan to emerge, uh, end quote. So could you explain how this might work in a real life situation? Yeah. I mean, the thing that comes to my mind when I hear you read what I wrote is that I know some people who call themselves a team, but there's really one person who dominates everything and everybody else is just little scared mice. That's not a team. That's really a joke. That domineering person basically makes all the decisions and he has an autocracy. But the rest of the people are not really on board, even though they are nodding their head up and down. Yes, you need to have a mutual respect, admiration for your teammates if you're really going to be a team. Sometimes you need someone to tell you the reality of a situation and not just your rose-colored reality or negative reality about something for you to get a reality check. When you have a collaborative type of situation. That's really a team. It works in all different facets of life, family, business, sports. You need to have that right to give your input and have it taken seriously by the rest of the team if the team is going to succeed. Yeah. Right now, that's even more important than ever. How have you used your team to pivot in this corona pandemic. We're a small team of three individuals. One of the individuals is having to handle extra family responsibilities due to the corona situation. So they give their input mainly through video conference or they handle matters that can be handled administratively for the company. My situation is more hands-on. I've had to do more of the work that involves going out and about. So I've had to take a lot of the measures for health protection. It's been allowing the team to continue to function. Another team member that we have is uh, very entrepreneurial, very tech savvy, and they're able to get a lot of the work done that 
depends on IT work and connection through technology. So it's been nice because with the crisis, we were just set back a little bit. We were able to remobilize quite quickly because we had a lot of different skill sets that were able to help us to adapt. When you have a crisis and you're only a autocracy, you close down. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to adapt because you've been doing everything yourself and now you've got to change and do everything else yourself. It can be very difficult to make that transition. Yeah, that's true. I know you always taught me the importance of being a specialist versus a generalist. It took me almost a year to really understand why. Could you explain some of the benefits of focusing on a a niche? That is rooted in some of the philosophy of Seth Godin, who is a really great, well-known marketer in Americana. He really helps his listeners to understand that it's better to be great at a few things instead of very good at a whole bunch of things. In today's market, there's so many people who can do a little bit of things, but you can stand out well if you are excellent in a few things. And that's where you can get customers. You have to be able to show that you are outstanding and that it pays for them to want to work with you. At the push of a button on their iPhone or on their computer, they can find a thousand of you. So it pays to be in the top 1% for their consideration. Even if you are a specialist, it's still important not to panic in a time like this and to remember that we're in a relationships business, no matter what type of business we're in. So could you explain more of what that means? I can just imagine in my brain right now, somebody who has a business of some type, it's a smaller business, maybe they work with one or two people, and you have a re- huge recession like we're entering, or you have a unexpected situation, hurricane, earthquake, pandemic, there is always the tendency to just switch your business model 180 degrees out of fear. But if they're really good at something, it pays for them to sit down and look at, okay, how do we deliver our product to our customers Or how do we slightly adjust this product or revolutionize it to reinvent ourselves in this situation instead of just freaking out? If you're a specialist, what's stopping you from innovating? You innovated to get to where you are, and now you're having a need to innovate being forced upon you. That's what I hope that individuals would think about there's ways to pull the brain trust of that team and brainstorm solutions. Yeah, that's true. I've probably never would have started this podcast under normal circumstances, but it's nothing stopping you. So why not? <laughs> that's right. That's right. What's the worst that could happen? That's true. I noticed too, you did a post about Muhammad Ali, and then there was a post a few weeks back about the tax on minorities. We've seen a lot of tension in the past few months with reports of minorities not receiving the proper COVID-19 care 
And now with the police brutality protests, you mentioned that brown people need to pay attention, but white people need to not blow it off. It's a real thing that actually occurs that maybe they weren't aware of before, but they need to take it seriously. What helps you to stay focused during these troubling times where there's so much going on? It it comes down to what you can influence. The people today are trying to force influence upon the rest of the population, meaning the people who are persecuted, the brown people. They want to force the persecutors to recognize their right to be who they are. It's a tough proposition because you can't force someone's heart to change towards you if they don't want to, but you can institute change upon yourself. I always come back to the point that I have to be realistic and that the black tax that I made the post about is something that the previous generation taught me. When I say the black tax, I know I have to to work a lot harder to keep up with my white colleagues who do the same type of work as me because there's a lot more bias against me getting that account or making that sale or whatever it may be income generating wise. But it's just a realistic thing. I can influence what I can do for anyone who sees me in my work clothes. I, I overdress for work on purpose because I try to overcome any stereotype that my listener may have against minorities so that I can take that off the table. I have white colleagues. They don't dress nearly as fancy as I do because they don't have to. If I'm trying to sell something to someone face to face or even over video conference, I can't look like everybody else because of my skin color. So I control what I can control. And that's my appearance dress wise, and I can put more people at ease. That's part of what that goes into. And the Muhammad Ali reference, I started the seventies at about four years old and ended it at 13 years old. And seeing him many times, he was very well dressed when he was being interviewed. He tried to speak well, energetically. And he highlighted that black people were as good as anybody else. I always liked that philosophy, not better. He would never say better. He said just as good. That's a mindset that all minorities need to have. You are just as good. But by the same token, you may need to up your game a bit in various aspects to be viewed as just as good. It's not just because you want to be just as good in your mind. So Muhammad Ali was a mentor to you. Why is it so important for everyone to have a a mentor or a role model, even as an adult? It's as simple as if someone is walking in the woods and they come out of the woods, you're about to go into the same woods. It would behoove you to ask them, how did it go? What did you experience? The woods are tough. You don't know what you might encounter. And if they successfully explored it, you should ask or listen carefully if they want to volunteer information. It's as simple as that. If you don't want to hear, then you're just going to fall into the same problems that they fell into, repeat the same issues instead of being able to take it one step further than they did by knowing in advance. That's what a mentor is for. It helps you avoid the same mistakes. (laughs) 
I found that sometimes I don't even avoid the same mistakes. I run into the same mistakes, but I expect them. They're not as shockingly surprising to me as it may have been to them because they told me this may happen. Then it does happen. And you're just like, okay, this is what they told me. I should have expected this or I didn't do what they told me to do. So now I'm dealing with this. Less shocking and surprising if you have a mentor. So now you're in the middle of two generations. You've been a mentor and you have a mentor. What do you feel of the benefits of both of those? Well, as I said, having a mentor is having almost like a map to the future that you can follow, not being blind as you're going forward. Being a mentor is the privilege of sharing your map with someone so that they're not blind as they go forward. So it's a chain link. I have a lot of respect for the Latino community. They are so diverse. They are so intelligent. They are so family-oriented across the board. They are very hardworking. I mean, just so many superlatives I could use. I feel so privileged to speak their language. I can often listen to a Latino speaker and talk with them and tell them where they're from. Not town and city, but I can discern many differences between countries and inflection and speech and accents. I just am very immersed in that community. One thing that is very huge in the United States and it's spreading worldwide is that the Latino community is getting and has great influence economically and culturally. I work with them to a large degree and I receive a lot of the benefits in my business by being bilingual because there's such great progress amongst the community there. I wouldn't trade it for the world. My closest friends I have are Latino, Spanish speakers primarily. I'm part of the, the community. It's a very positive thing for me. Yeah, it does open up a whole new world when you speak another language. Not only another world, but what I have absorbed is that Latinos have a different viewpoint than English speakers. We say the White House, not referring to the president's White House, but just like a generic White House. But they say La Casa Blanca. They put the noun before the adjective. That's not just a formalism. What it is is more important than what color it is. That's why there's a little bit more understanding and acceptance in the Latino culture because. You are a person first, then you are whatever color you are or whatever nationality you are. So if we could take that mindset into English speaking culture, wherever that is, we might be better off because just being taught as we grow up, it, that's a black man, that's a black woman. We put the adjective before the noun and it becomes a instruction to us that you are the thing before you are the person. I hadn't thought about it that way before. It seems like the U.S. is slowly catching up, but according to the U.S. Census Bureau, only 20% of Americans can converse in two or more languages compared with 56% of Europeans. I think that might be because some countries in Europe are very small. But what do you think are the factors behind that? Well, I haven't been to Europe since I was a little kid, but I do know that you can cross borders 
very easily. We cross borders here all the time, but they're states instead of countries. Some of our states are as big as some European countries. The fact that we're so large under one government is a good thing and a bad thing because there's a lot of flexibility here in the United States. You can drive across country and have very few issues. We don't really have to learn different languages. Everybody that you interact with has to speak English from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, California. That's a good thing and a bad thing. That's why we're at 20 percent in the statistics of individuals who are bilingual. As more and more bilingual individuals are gaining prominence here in different aspects of the country, economically, it would be nice to go to a Latino store as an English speaker and buy what you want in Spanish. So I'm sure more people are seeing the value of that because more and more ethnic groups are starting businesses at a faster clip than even English speakers. There's going to come a time where if you really want a a great experience all the way around, whether it's education-wise, work-wise, purchase-wise, you will want to speak at least some words in the language. Hopefully that will take off soon. How do you help kids to be bilingual in an environment like that? I've seen all these reports of wanting to help kids be bilingual, but kids don't have any incentive to be bilingual if they're born into one language group unless it's important for them to function in society. The best results I've seen have come out of bilingual education where the children are immersed in the two languages at an early age so that they don't really see any difference at school. If I want to ask for the book, I can ask for the book or a libro. That's how they need to be introduced early on in immersion education, where the best scenario has been, from my perspective, where there are certain time periods where they can only speak one language and certain time periods where they speak the other language. Then it just becomes a second nature to them. Yeah, hopefully it it will take off. It's good to get them Well, they're young and they're not afraid of making mistakes. Fear is one thing. Children do things when they don't really understand that it's extra special. They just do it. If it starts to become special for them to do something, they start to get confused. Why are you making this special? What's going on? If if it's just expected, I think that would be a better thing. (laughs) Also, being a a bilingual person, you see things from... Not only the two language perspectives, but also from the perspective of a language learner and a native speaker. So as a language learner, what do you wish native speakers of of any language knew? A native speaker has the right to be a native speaker. I don't think they really need to learn anything or know anything about a learner. I think it's the learner that needs to raise the bar whether it's a Spanish speaker trying to learn English or an English speaker trying to learn Spanish, it's up to the learner to adapt, not the native person. Very good point. If you're learning, you, by choice, decided to enter another sphere. So you have to learn how things are done in that sphere. That's right. That's right. If I was a native Spanish speaker, for example, I would see it as important to learn as much as I could about the English language and the English culture, because 
just like the Latino culture, English speakers are very diverse. I have uh, individuals I deal with in different parts of the United States, and some of them, the way they talk, it's totally different than the way I talk. But I know what they're talking about because I'm familiar with their culture, and we can communicate. A Latino person should do their investigation, their homework. They're not going to become a native speaker, so to speak, but they can become well-versed. And fluency is more than just talking. It's understanding. I don't expect native speakers to adjust for me. I, I need to learn and adjust to them. I think a lot of people forget that and they're expecting some type of special treatment and they get frustrated and stop. That's not how life works. It's a privilege to learn a different language and to learn about a different culture. So learn it and do your best. So you're going to have a lot of trial and error, but eventually you learn and you make progress step by step. It's great. Best thing I've ever done is learn Spanish. Like the best endeavor. Yeah, it's helped my life a lot. It helps me from watching you doing it. <laughs> so if you were to give a, a main takeaway for someone who's just getting started, maybe they're trying to learn Spanish or they're trying to learn English, what would you tell them? While a lot of my peers were using their money to get fancy clothes, they were using their money to buy fancy cars. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I put a lot of money towards language classes. I did that because I had spent many years doing free language classes, which were through public school. I even did one on a university level that wasn't free. But I found that that type of environment where I was in a group environment trying to repeat after the teacher and doing solitary homework, it did not work at all for my brain. I was never able to be conversant in Spanish. I just knew enough to be funny, pretty much. I couldn't carry on a conversation until I was 22 years old. So I said, if I keep doing the same old thing, I'm going to keep having the same results because I've been trying to do this since I've been seven years old. The beauty of it was I only had to make that big investment one time. From that point on, I got the tools I needed to basically reprogram my brain is what my one-on-one -on -one classes did. That's similar to what you do now too. Helping people have that one-on-one -on -one feedback is the best thing ever. The fire will not keep burning until it reaches a certain temperature. The key is to keep yourself invested in learning until you can get to a certain level. Once you get to that level where you're really getting the hang of things, the fire keeps burning. The little twigs that get the fire started, that's the initial interest and the excitement that a person has. But that can burn out quickly if they don't maintain a commitment to their learning. Then they get to a certain point where they're much more profound in what they can say, what they can hear, what they can understand. That's comparable to the logs being put on the fire. When they start to see true benefits in their life, then it keeps burning because they want to keep on making investments into it. You have to start out with twigs and smaller items that can get the fire to a certain temperature, but it takes time and you have to be committed. If you don't have enough 
funds to do it, do it in bits and pieces. Don't go for the cheapest way is what I would advise people because that often is communal and it often will only work for a select few people that really operate that way. Good points. So if someone wanted to contact you after today, how could they follow your content? You've been writing a lot of good articles lately. You're on LinkedIn. Where else can they find you? I don't know why somebody would want to follow me. <laughs> That's not really an ambition in life to create followers. I mainly encourage myself so I can relook at it later on and have it saved to some degree. But people can go to my LinkedIn page and check me out there. That's the only thing I really do that's fully public, but it's not with the goal of building a huge following. I just like to interact with professionals and build one another up and share positive links that I've come across that can help other people with their businesses or their mindset. I enjoy doing that. I think that's a good reason to follow you. Somebody needs some encouragement, they can check there. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's been fun. Still want more? First, subscribe or follow the Clever Hybrids podcast wherever you're listening to this, and you can binge listen to our 30 plus episodes. If you want help to create a podcast or content for your business, check out our website, cleverhybrids.com. And as always, Welcome to the Clever Hybrids Tribe. This is Gabby V signing off. See you next time.